The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit shadygrovepca.org. We're giving attention to uh, Mark chapter 9. If you want to follow along in your your Bible or an app, and there's pew Bibles, those um, black-covered Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take one of those. Those are meant to be taken with you. If if you don't have a Bible, please take one of those with you. You can follow along in that Bible as well. Uh, There's a story that's told of Winston Churchill. There's many that are told, and one of the classic uh, encounters with Churchill was he had a male servant, and, and they were in a pretty big argument and a quarrel and eventually Churchill sheepishly admitted that he was was wrong and he said to the servant but he was offended by the servant and he said you were very rude to me you know and the servant replied but yes but you were rude too and Churchill responded with yes but I'm a great man and there's something that sticks out about that right what is what do you think was wrong with Churchill's trump card of laying down, but, but I'm a great man? And uh, maybe this text will help us to see greatness differently. As you consider this passage from Mark 9, 30 to 41, this is the word of God. Let's give attention. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they didn't understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? They kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. He sat down and called the twelve. He said to them, If anyone will be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. He took a child and put him in the midst of them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Let me pray again for us. Father, now as we consider and sit under your word, uh, we ask that it would bring life to us, spiritual life, that it would bring refreshment, that your word would revive our souls, it would give joy to our hearts, light to our eyes. And we pray that we would grow in grace. And pray that we wouldn't harden our hearts, that the enemy would not steal this word, that we would not immediately yield to it, but then later have it taken away. We pray that we would bear fruit with patience, and even with this word. We ask in your name. Amen. So what we have here are two stories. and both stories, the disciples are misguided, and they need a course correction, right? They're zealous, but their zeal isn't according to knowledge, and therefore they're missing the way, as the Proverbs might say. And in the first story, 
Jesus is showing us, verses 33 to 37, what it means to love one another. How do we do that? Second story, Jesus is showing us what it looks like to love those outside of our fellowship. So I've titled this section, in the sermon title, just Non-Negotiables in the Kingdom of God, as we're going to be on this for a couple of weeks, with some other passages as well. But notice the, uh, I want to stick, go to the second story first, and then we'll kind of focus most of our attention on the first one. But the second story, John thinks he's doing Jesus a favor. If you look back at verse uh, 38, John, you know, he sees somebody casting out demons in your name, and he says, we tried to stop him because he was not following us. That's a pretty important last word there. <laughs> not, not following you, but he wasn't following us. I mean, he wasn't playing on our ball field. He wasn't on our home court here. And just because other words, others aren't following us doesn't mean they're not following Jesus. And what Jesus is showing us how to love people outside of our fellowship. You always have to watch out for a sectarian spirit, a cliquishness, an our way or the highway spirit. You can very easily develop an idea of thinking, well, only our church is doing it right. Only our baptism is acknowledged. We don't acknowledge your baptism. Or nothing good comes from that denomination. We don't support parachurch ministries. Only we are doing it right. And John thinks he's doing Jesus a favor, but what we see is that Jesus is actually more open, more broad-minded about who is doing kingdom work than the sectarian inclinations of his disciples, in particular John. And so we have to ask ourselves a question. Could we be more sectarian than Jesus? Could we be more narrow than Jesus? If so, who needs to change? Not Jesus. And so if John's sectarian spirit uh, was to continue to grow if it wasn't to be, you know, checked here. Thankfully, Jesus gives a course correction quickly. What would happen if that little seed of sin were to grow? What would it look like? Well, I think we have an example. At the end of Third John, you have a story about this guy named Di Diatrophes. And I think this is what a, a sectarian spirit would look like if it went to full flower, full bloom, full bud, this is what we're told about this guy in 3 John. John says, I've written something to the church, but, but Diatrophes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. I mean, this guy's way above the apostles. He doesn't acknowledge our authorities. So if I come, if I, come I will bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. So he's even railing against the apostles. He's, he's railing against John. Not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. These would be the traveling missionaries and traveling preachers that have gone out for the sake of the name, and John's telling them to receive them. And he's saying he refuses to welcome them. He stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. So here's a guy in the church, and if anybody else, everything's got to run through diatrophies. And if you're trying to minister to somebody that's not part of the fellowship, he'll stop you and kick you out of the church. The old double uh, segregation here. And so you're like, what in the world is up with this guy? Everything in the church has to go through him 
because he has an inflated view of himself. He thinks that only his view is what's important. And there is something interesting about us that we do have to just keep in mind. I, I, I remember George Carlin did a, a funny comedian act, and he's not a guy I would normally quote from the pulpit, but he talks about how we always think we're going the right speed when we drive. We're going the right speed. I mean, if anybody's too slow in front of us, well, they're stupid. And if anybody's too fast and roaring up behind us, they're idiots. But we are always the proper standard of the proper speed. Think about it. You always think that either they're going too slow or too fast, but I am the proper speed. And I think there's something about that that we think we know better, a little bit better than everybody else about what, what should be, who should be a part of the church, who shouldn't. And Diatrophes is like, has this unbelievably inflated, he is John's sectarian spirit now on steroids of what it would actually look like. Of no, we try to stop him, and, they are, and he's truly stopping people. Well, what would that look like if that went to a whole denomination? What would that look like? Well, I've told this story before, that I knew a missionary who'd been in Egypt, and he was in Egypt, and he was, went out with a fundamentalist Baptist organization. He had to sign a statement of faith on the way out, that every year you'd have to sign this. And the statement of faith is that you wouldn't play cards. Yep. You wouldn't drink alcoholic beverages. Yep. You wouldn't fellowship with charismatics. And the first year after they wrestled that for a year with that, they wrote back and said they signed it, but they wrote, what about Rook? Because they enjoyed the game of Rook and like, you know, can we play other games where we can't play cards? And they were kind of like, you know, a little bit tongue-in-cheek. And after... The second year, I mean, they're like, man, in Egypt, anybody that's a Christian, you're hugging them. So they had charismatic friends. And they could not in good conscience sign this letter, this statement. So they send it back. How do you think that went? Well, when you got the sectarian spirit and you're trying to stop those that aren't with us, man, they sent it out to everybody immediately. And they immediately lost 85% of their support. And so I, you know, here I am meeting them stateside in Greenville, South Carolina. I was like, man, that must have been really hard. I said, you must have had to come home from the field. He said, well, we would have loved to have come home from the field, but we had no money. They're stuck in Egypt. All their support went away. So he said it took them months to scramble the monies to get home. And when you come home, you've got to start completely over of all of your fundraising because of a little John spirit of, we try to stop them, gotta make sure, Jesus, we're doing you a favor. They weren't doing Jesus any favors. So let's be careful that our views aren't more narrow than Jesus's, and if they are, then we're the ones need to change, not Jesus. Now, so that's how I think we should love those outside of our fellowship that Jesus is trying to get us to see. But then how about inside the fellowship, okay? So since... Um, the middle of Mark, if you go back under, if you have your Bible and you look back three times, Jesus tells us his mission on this earth. And three times he tells us, uh, beginning at, at 831, we have this, this is a pretty big emphasis in, in, in the Gospel of Mark, three times he tells us he's leaving. And he's going to suffer, he's going to die, 
It's going to be raised. So this is what he says. 831, he began to teach them that the Son of God must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. So we see that in 831. All right, when we get to 930, and he tells them, chapter 9, verse 30, from, from there he passed through Galilee, didn't want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered in the hands of men. They will kill him, and when he's killed, after three days he will rise. He tells them again. And then you look over at chapter 10, and of course, we get it again in chapter 10, and he says, uh, verse 33, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests, the scribes. They will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Three times. Now, I just want you to now notice what the immediate response of the disciples is in all three of these. Because I just read you, you know, Jesus. I mean, that's some pretty weighty news, wouldn't you say? I mean, that would probably really weigh heavy on you that Jesus is your leader is telling you that he's going to be killed and he's going to suffer greatly before being killed. Let's just see how it, how it falls on the disciples' ears. So you go back to 8.32. It said he told them this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So that's how the first news falls upon him. There's no way. You're our leader. Everything's going great. There's no way this is going to happen. He begins to rebuke Jesus. You know, if you're rebuking Jesus, that's, you know, we kind of know that there's something that's not going to go so well. So Jesus has to turn around and rebuke him. Get behind me, Satan, because you're setting your mind on the things of, not on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is a, a, a man, it's a worldly agenda, man-centered agenda, not God's. Second time, he tells him. He tells him he's going to be killed. Three days he will rise, 9.32. It says they didn't understand the saying, and we're afraid to ask him. Don't ask, don't tell, like, we don't, can't go there. Afraid of what that means, not even going to consider it. So then it says they went to Capernaum, and while he was in the house, he says, what are you guys discussing on the way? And they kept silent, but they were, it turns out they were arguing with one another about who was going to be the greatest. That's how it's fallen on their ears. We didn't really hear. We want to know who's going to be the greatest. Now, certainly by the third time, it's going to get better, right? So let's look at the third one. He tells them in, in 1033, they're going to condemn him to death. 1034, they're going to mock him, spit on him, flog him, kill him. How's that going to land on our ears? And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. We love you, Jesus, and we have a wonderful plan for your life. We want to do whatever we want. We want to do you to do for us whatever we ask. I mean, that is just the most audacious statement in Scripture. And he said to them, well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand, one at your left, in glory. There's the trifecta for you. How are they doing, them disciples? I mean, we've got three scenes, and it's strike one, strike two, strike three. There's not a lot of change going on with the disciples, is there? And we see in each of these that their focus is really about, well, what's in it for us? And how do we turn this around and use it for us 
And where are we going to fit in this? And then, I mean, they, they want to sit at the right and on the left, can't get any closer than that. And as you process this, I think uh, kind of helps us to see that we really shouldn't be surprised when we see selfishness and pride, self-promotion, self-exaltation, when it pops up in our hearts or in the hearts of others. I mean, we started this service with this guy saying, it's me, it's me, you know, and all of a sudden he gets hot and he wants everybody in the world to know, it's me, it's me. Should we be surprised? I mean, that is just the natural inclination of what we want to do. If any of the, anything these three texts should be teaching us, it's to have some pretty low expectations. Look for it in our lives because it's constantly like whack-a-mole. The thing pops up and you got to bam, back it, bat that thing down. And we really shouldn't be surprised when we see it in other people's lives. That doesn't mean we should excuse it. But we should almost come to see it as, well, this is what the heart of man is naturally inclined to do, is to turn it for himself and wondering how he can use it for his purposes. And the world has always operated on these principles of greatness. And so they're just consumed with greatness, right? But there are aspects of greatness that are healthy. Notice Jesus doesn't just say he's just totally against greatness. Did, Did he say that in any of these texts? I mean, there's a reason why everybody hates a tie in sports. You play a whole soccer game. You're, 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 you know, blood, sweat, and tears in a hockey game or a football game. And you finish in a tie. I mean, it's just so humorous when you finish with a tie and you watch them interview the person. They ask them, what, what do they think? They don't know what to do. This is terrible. We don't know whether we should be happy or whether we should be in the pits. We're... we're we're just confused. Like, how can a game end in a tie? Right? We naturally compete to see who is the greater of the teams. We're currently in the midst of NBA playoffs and NHL hockey playoffs for a reason. Only one team is going to hoist the Stanley Cup. Only one team is going to win the NBA Finals. Not everybody gets a trophy. Not everybody gets a ribbon. You can't even watch Wheel of Fortune or Jeopardy without there being a winner. When the gymnastics compete on the vault, the bars, the beam, and the floor, they're all trying to do what? They're all trying to land tens to determine who's the greatest, which team is the greatest. We love that. And we just saw some tens. If you saw any of the highlights of the college gymnastics, some amazing gymnasts. Jesus isn't saying, you know, you should just bomb the SAT. You should find the worst college on the planet and have the worst possible scores And when the teacher gives a test, don't aspire for a great grade. Go for the lowest grade. Like, is that what he's saying? We kind of know innately that's not what Jesus is saying. At least I hope we do. Otherwise, we're really kind of off here. Jesus doesn't rebuke greatness in these scenes. He doesn't say nobody should aspire to be great. We should all move from great to good. We should all strive for mediocrity. I mean, is that what Jesus is saying? No. He says in 935... If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. There's a way to be first that God notices, but it's an upside-down kingdom. And he called in 1042 to 44, he called them again to him. This is when James and John are trying to be, you know, sit at the right hand and left hand. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them but it shall not be among, so among you. 
Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be servant of all or slave of all. Jesus isn't saying there shouldn't be greatness. He's redefining greatness and showing us what the upside-down kingdom looks like. You see, greatness in Jesus, in his day, it was all about the pecking order, where you're sitting at the table. I mean, there was a whole rank and file to everything. And James and John understood that. That's why they're asking to be seated on the right hand and on the left. Those will be the two most prominent positions. Pretty shocking from where they started. I mean, these guys, I mean, they weren't shepherds. They weren't tax collectors. They weren't as far down on the pecking order as possible. But being a, a fisherman was not exactly like the most privileged position in society. It wasn't exactly like they were a Pharisee, a scribe, or some noble or, you know, serving in the Sanhedrin or something. I mean, they're just, they're fishermen. There was a rank to that. And it wasn't the highest by any sense. But they had experienced something. We've been up on the mountaintop, and only three of us got to be there. And it was me and James and old Peter over there, but we're going to push him out. We want to be on the right, we want to be on the left, because we've been there, and we know that Jesus didn't choose those other nine guys. He chose us, and we are something special. So Peter, move it on out. Me and James got it from here. We are going to take that top spot, right and left. You know that's had to be some of the argument going on. I mean, he didn't pick any of the other nine, and we got to see something pretty special. We can't really tell you about it, but there was Moses, there was Elijah, and then there was us. We are happening I mean, they had thought, we might have started as fishermen, but we have arrived. And Jesus, he takes a child, puts them in the midst of them, taking them in his arms. He said, whoever would receive one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So follow this. Jesus, in verse 33, is in Capernaum. It's the last time he's going to be there. And it says in verse 33 that he went into the house. Notice it doesn't say a house. It says the house. And we, that house is still there. I mean, my, my neighbor was just there two, last week. He was like, I saw Charlie Peter's house. He was there. He was all excited. Hope you're listening, Jorge. So... They've turned this thing into, you know, kind of like a, I think like a church now or something. But this is Peter's house. And he's in there with Peter's house, and he takes a child, most likely Peter Jr. Come here, Peter Jr. And he grabs one of Peter's kids, most likely, and grabs him, puts his arm around this guy, and he's saying, this guy, whoever receives one of them, this is important. Why is he doing that? Because Jesus is showing us that true greatness is an upside-down kingdom. We read this story at the beginning of worship, like Jesus goes to a Samaritan woman. I mean, did the disciples get that? Like, what? You're doing what? You're talking to a woman who is in Samaria? Like, they are like, Jesus, what are you doing? She was important to him. But she certainly was not important to the disciples. They would have never been caught dead talking to her. 
And then it, by the end of the story, they're staying two more days as revival breaks out in Samaria and, and, and racial healing is taking place. I mean, it's just unbelievable in one chapter what Jesus does when he changes this woman's life. Others are now being changed, you see. But this ch children were not considered highly valued. They would sometimes be discarded and left aside. And so as one commentator put it like this, when someone welcomes or literally serves a child who because of size, immaturity, and most importantly, lack of social standing, who is among the least, that service will be accepted as though it was done to Jesus himself, and service rendered to Jesus will be regarded as service rendered to God. So now we just get the easy application. I mean, bink, hit the easy button. What do you think of children? What do you think of youth ministry? What do you think of the nursery? What do you think of the toddlers? Do you work with them? Do you love them? Do you pray for them? Do you volunteer for the children's ministry? Let me be in that children's nursery. Let me be on the children's schedule for children's church. When I hear fussing babies in the church on the household of God Sundays, I'm okay with it. I just start praying for the family because I know it's got to be really hard on these moms. I love children because Jesus loves them. Or do you say, I'm not really good with children. My gifts are better served elsewhere. Better served elsewhere. Better served according to whose measuring standards. And if you have prominence or position or some respected title during the week, how much more would you be adorning the gospel by serving the children, by working in the children's church rotation, helping with vacation Bible school, helping with that sports camp, helping on that nursery rotation, working in the twos and threes. Like, you who up there, you came and, and, and you would work with us? You're, you're, you're a college professor. You're, a, you know, you're, you're an accountant. You're a lawyer. You're a big shot. And you're, you're coming down and serving. The, like, yeah, that's just, that's what Jesus is. That's, that's where the kingdom is. That's where I want to be. Or do we say, ah, oh, that's kind of a burden. We don't want to minimize what Jesus is maximizing. Imagine if there's a church and nobody wants to work with the children. Nobody wants to be down in there. Nobody wants to work with Sunday school. I only want to teach adults. I want my gifts to count. Imagine if we really had a mindset like that. I only want to work with adults because I want my gifts to count. We would need a new accountant because our accounting would be all wrong. And Jesus is showing us what loving one another looks like. It looks like loving the people that aren't valued so highly. We do well to remember one of D.L. Moody's little jingles and pithy quotes. He said, we once said, we may be too big for God to use, but never too small. But we can be too big for him. You see, now if the sermon was just to end here, you'd gotten a nice moralistic sermon and you would follow the example of Jesus, and you go home and think, that's how you enter the kingdom, that's how you do everything in the kingdom. And it is true, we are called to follow in his footsteps. But I don't want to minimize the necessity of both, there's the, Jesus' example that we are to follow, that's, but what makes you a Christian? It, and you know, what, how do you become a Christian? And you see, the reality is Jesus is leading up to the Boom, the big punchline of Mark is Mark 10, 45. It's the, it's the theme of the whole gospel. And it's after the third time of greatness, greatness, greatness. 
And he doesn't just say, example, 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 follow my example, follow my example. He does tell them to follow example, but he tells them the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Nothing you can do to be an example about that. You can't lay your life down to, to be a ransom for other people. But Jesus did, and that's what they couldn't understand. Why you got to go to Jerusalem? Why you got to go to the cross? Why, why are you going there? Because he had to save us from our sins. And to ransom us means to redeem us, means to buy us back, means to pay for us with his blood. And this is the key. Jesus must first be seen as the object of our faith before he can be the example of our faith. And one end of Christianity only wants to talk about him as the object of your faith. And the other end, only the liberal side, only wants to talk about being the example. He's just your example. He's just your example. The answer is it's both. But the way in is he has to be the object of your faith. That you have to see that, he, that 1045 is true. That he came as a ransom for many to save us from our sins. You see? And so Jesus first has to be the object of our faith. Because there's something about us, about our own self-promotion, self-glory, self-serving, self-pity, self-righteousness, you know, this me monster idea that's in us, so that we will want to do these other things so that we can upsize ourselves and be noticed, just like the disciples wanted to in the James and John. And, and we have to constantly die to that and say, not to us, not to your name, but to your name be the glory. You must become greater. I must become less. It's not about me. It's not my story. It's his story, and I must trust in his finished work on a cross that he alone and what he's done to receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation. Then we can begin to become these followers, and we follow the example of, of Christ. This was when J. Gretchen Machen was fighting liberalism back in the 20s, and he wrote two books. He wrote Christianity and Liberalism, and he wrote this other one called What is Faith? But he was making one central point, and it's the point I just hammered on. This is what he said. Jesus presented himself not merely as an example for faith, but as the object of faith. He invited men not merely to have faith in God, like the faith which he had in God, but he invited them to have faith in him. He clearly regarded himself as Messiah, not in some lower meaning of the word, but as the heavenly son of man who was to come with the clouds of heaven and be the instrument in judging the world. He clearly pointed forward to some catastrophic event in which he was to have a central place, some catastrophic event by which the kingdom of heaven was to be ushered in. The truth is that Jesus, who preached a gospel of universal divine fatherhood and a sonship, which was man's right as which was man's right as never existed until modern times. He says the real Jesus presented himself not merely as teacher, but also as Lord and as redeemer. And so is he your redeemer? Has he saved you by his blood and you're clinging to him for, for that he, he's the one who is great. And then in this upside down kingdom, the one who's the greatest becomes the least. The one who's the, the furthest up into heaven goes to the lowest place on a cross. And so we would trust in that and be saved, but then we would get it. And, and when the Spirit comes into our life, he, he switches, and then the magnet flips, and it's no longer, you know, attracting all the praise for self. Now it's repelling it, and it's attracting all the praise to Jesus. There's a, there's a repelling now that's taking place. 
but we want him to have the glory. And the disciples were slow to get this. They're slow to get it, so he has to keep chicking, chunking away at their, you know, their false thoughts and inclinations. And for us as well this morning, we, we still struggle with these things. But the light has clicked. If, if he is your Savior and Lord, now we want to follow his example, which is suffering before glory. He loves the children, so we too must love those that he loves. Let's pray. Father, have your way in our hearts. Holy Spirit, take um, these words of Jesus, and we pray that it would, uh, we would not just go and forget what we look like, but that we would bear good fruit, that we would love, Lord, the little ones, the least, the ones that get neglected in our culture and even in our church. We pray that you would change our hearts, O oh God, to repel any glory that would come towards us and that we would give you the praise and you the glory. We ask in your name. Amen.